Welcome to the Mergers and Acquisitions podcast, and thanks for the feedback that many of you have provided. In this episode, we'll step away from the workings of the deal itself and look at why it makes sense to do a deal. It's not simple to know whether a deal is a success, or for that matter, if not doing a deal is the wise decision, as it's virtually impossible to prove the counterfactual, that is, to tell what would have happened in the other scenario. I have to say this is quite a happy coincidence for many dealmakers. You don't hear them complaining so much about the difficulties of objectively measuring their success. Very often, just getting the deal signed and executed is considered a success. But of course, in this podcast, and I'm sure many shareholders will agree, we dig deeper and we want to know if the deal has added the value that was promised when the board approved the deal. And if the deal disappointed in the post-acquisition review, many times the dealmaker's defense might be that they did the deal proposed by the strategy department and therefore they should be responsible. But how can we find a combination of strategy work and deal-making that together is bringing the company to a higher level? This is something that McKinsey has studied extensively, and therefore I'm very grateful to have as guest today, Jeff Rudnicki, who leads the M&A strategy and due diligence practice at McKinsey and is a senior partner at the Boston office. Jeff, welcome. What is it that you love about deals? Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here to talk about one of my absolute favorite subjects. I've been involved in mergers and acquisitions for my entire career, over 20 years. And what do I love about deals? There's two elements that I like in particular. One is it's a rapid way to transform your company, to transform your strategy, and to change the trajectory of your business. The second part I love is the human part of the deal. As you already mentioned, there's a lot of work that goes into it by a lot of individuals just to make the deal happen. But then to actually turn the deal into the full potential that it presents is such a wonderful career opportunity for everyone that I've worked with, either at McKinsey or our clients. And that's just such a high energizing feeling for us. Thank you. I can understand these feelings. So you've done a lot of research at McKinsey, starting all the way back maybe 20 years ago, if I'm correct, uh, looking at what large companies get out or not get out of deals. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, so this research started actually in 1999. We first published about when I first came to McKinsey in 2010, 2011. And then every two years or so, we update it. We're actually due for another update in the next month or two. And I'll share some of those early results on today's podcast. But effectively, there was this notion, and I know we'll talk about it, that 70% of deals destroy value. And We wanted to understand more because our fundamental belief was that can't be true, given how much capital is deployed. So what we did is we looked at the largest 2,000 companies in the world. So these are the top 2,000 companies in market cap over a long-term time period. So the research that I'll talk about today is during the period, the decade of the 2010s. So what you do is you take the 2,000 largest companies in 2010, And then you look at the companies that remain that are still publicly traded and still among the top 2000 at the end of 2019. And you look at their M&A behaviors and what we've found, which is what we have found every single time that we have done this research. So every single two year period is that programmatic companies, and these are companies who are defined as doing more than two smaller mid-sized deals per year and they acquire a meaningful amount of market cap over the 10-year period, about 20% of their market cap is acquired. Those companies, we call them programmatic, 
not only perform the highest, their total return to shareholders is beyond those of their peer set. And we do compare peers to peers. We do look across industries, but we're not saying you're winning because you're in a better industry. You're actually beating your peers. So programmatic companies not only perform better, but their variance, their total return to shareholder variance is lower. So we have found that every single time. Now the research does change, as you can imagine, year over year. This year, what we found uh, in our most recent is organic companies. So those that are effectively not doing deals are now performing the worst with the highest variation. Selective companies, so those that are like programmatic acquiring smaller mid-sized companies, but just are not acquiring at the same rate. So they're acquiring fewer than two deals per year. They destroyed a little bit of value. And then large deals, which are companies that did at least one acquisition where they acquired 30% or more of their own market cap in a transaction. These are the mega deals that we often read about on the front page. Those deals are a coin flip. So half of the companies in our research that did large deals outperformed their peers and half of the companies that did large deals underperformed their peers. Not surprisingly, their variation is quite high. All of that's interesting, but let's go at the programmatic companies first. What do you think that's distinguishing their behavior to get to these fantastic results? Is it doing the deal itself or what do you see these companies doing differently? Programmatic companies do a couple things differently. It starts at the beginning. So it starts with your strategy. So when I talk to companies that deploy a programmatic M&A program, they have a couple things up front. One is a very clear corporate strategy with alignment among executives, among the organization, and importantly, among the board. They know who they are and they know how they create value. The second thing is they know very clearly where M&A is needed to execute on that strategy. We don't think of M&A as a strategy in itself. We think of it as a tool to help support the corporate strategy. A company with a very clear, what we call an M&A blueprint, understands where M&A is needed and they're focusing their M&A execution engine on those specific areas. I think M&A, uh, programmatic M&A companies from there deploy what we call a proactive sourcing engine. So the idea here is they're not waiting on maybe bankers or companies to present themselves as for sale. Well before companies are for sale, they're actively engaging in conversations to talk about what they do and how a potential target could be a great partner. And this programmatic approach creates a large amount of activity at the front end of the M&A funnel. Programmatic companies then are great at diligence and they're looking well beyond just the financial diligence, but at the strategic diligence, they're often understanding a company's culture even before they've made an acquisition. And then lastly, and incredibly importantly, they're good at integration planning and execution. They're maximizing the value of the opportunity, both on cost, capital, and on revenue. It sounds like the learning aspect is important there. My sense working in Shell was always that learning is a key element of doing M&A well. I mean, M&A is such a broad discipline. You can only do it well if you do all these elements in a good way. And the opportunities to make mistakes are so wide and fully available. And if you make mistakes in your valuations on the acquisition, 
even if you make mistakes up and down, the self-selection will be through deal select that it always is at your own expense. Individually, a person, a deal leader can learn from a deal, but a single deal can take up to 18 months, so you learn very slowly. That's why we invested in learning across deals. Every deal conclusion must be followed by a post-deal learning session by its participants. And these learnings would be gathered and shared across all active dealmakers. That way you build a volume of knowledge that's broader and stronger than having a few experienced individuals. When I saw your McKinsey research, Jeff, it felt my intuition about learning in dealmaking was validated by solid data for the first time. We'll take a short break now, and then I have more questions for you, Jeff. Pilko and Associates is the leading advisor to deal leaders and senior executives on operational, EHS and ESG risks and liabilities in the global chemical and energy industries. Since 1980, the firm has advised on over $600 billion of transactions involving facilities in 80 countries, including some of the highest profile deals during the past five decades. Pilco's advisors have an average of 38 years of relevant professional experience in operational and executive roles with major energy and chemical companies. For more information, go to pilco.com. We're back at the M&A podcast with my guest, Jeff Rudnicki from McKinsey. We've just learned that a programmatic M&A strategy of doing lots of deals Building a strong deal-making ability is the winning strategy. Jeff, you talked about uh, doing the analysis of corporates, uh, but have you also looked at private equity? It would seem to me that they're following your advice a lot better than uh, the listed companies in the Global 2000. Yes, it's obviously hard outside in to get as much information from public sources on private equity companies, but you're absolutely right. In fact, I speak regularly and obviously our firm serves many private equity companies and this is exactly what they're doing. It's quite rare to see a private equity company do a mega deal. And in fact, their business model is almost predicated on programmatic M&A, deploying M&A, M&A capital in a programmatic way. When you talk to these companies, it's very, very similar where they are not only strong on execution and diligence, as maybe most of you think about, but they have a very clear M&A strategy and sourcing approach. And so you're absolutely right. Private equity companies perform strongly on programmatic M&A. The other thing, just building on your last comment about the culture of learning and a culture of refinement, private equity companies, in my experience, are much, much stronger on this idea of looking themselves in the mirror 12 months, 18 months post-deal and saying, what did we get right? What could we have done better? How do we incorporate this learning into our next transaction? Uh, this is part of their DNA, much more so than corporates. Jeff, your research says that doing large deals is a coin flip. So what's behind that? And is there anything to do for a company to make sure that they land on the right side when that coin is flipped? Yeah, it is interesting. When we first did this research, the large deal companies on average destroyed value versus peers. There were some notable exceptions. And as I mentioned, the standard deviation of this category is quite large, as you can imagine. The two biggest drivers, one of which we can tell on clients we serve, and then one which we can tell externally. I'll start with the external uh, view. Companies that are doing large deals, but also engaging in programmatic M&A. 
are much more likely to create more value than their peers with, again, a lower standard deviation. The idea being the companies that are doing a large deal and then not doing any M&A for some period of time, the large deal event kind of takes them out of the market, the M&A market. Those are incredibly risky. And those are the ones that are on average destroying values. The companies that are buying, by the way, they're often divesting as well. They're often divesting kind of non-core assets, either assets that they just acquired that aren't core or assets that they had previously that may have been core, but became less core with the large acquisition. Those companies are doing better. And they're also continuing to buy. They're complementing or augmenting their large deal with additional M&A. So those companies, large deal programmatic companies, are creating value. The second thing which we can tell from clients we serve, healthy companies on average are more successful large deal acquirers. You'll hear a lot about, and I'm sure you've talked about or been experienced yourself on this idea that culture can kill a deal. Well, our belief is that healthy companies are more likely to be healthy acquirers. And it's very, very hard to change your culture when you do a large deal. In fact, it's probably harder to change your culture than if you don't do a large deal because you're now introducing a lot of complexity with a large transaction and to do a culture change on top of that can be incredibly difficult. So just to recap, large deal acquisitions are a coin flip on average. The two things that you can do to successfully add value include one, don't let a large deal get in the way of continuing a programmatic M&A approach. And two, healthy companies, healthy cultures, on average, lead to successful large deals. Yeah, what I take from that is, in a way, with programmatic M&A, you're practicing for the large deal. Suppose that you were even planning to do one. So uh, referring to Shell, when we did the BG acquisition, there was 70 billion at the time, so that would definitely classify as a large deal in your research. We used all the infrastructure that we built up through doing lots of smaller deals in the preceding years. And that was probably why we're, we're then more likely to make it a success. And even with all of that available, I can tell you it was very heavy lifting. Yeah, I think a lot of times large deals can get a bad rap. If you can find a target for which the most of the asset or the company is absolutely core to your strategy and is what you were looking for in M&A, then that's wonderful. Because as you mentioned, even one deal, no matter how small, creates a base load of work and can be difficult to integrate. And so if you can take a bigger bite, that's exactly the kind of bite you want, then that would be wonderful. It's just that as companies grow and they become more complex, it becomes, I think, less common for a large acquisition to contain 100% of strategic assets, which is why, again, this concept of doing a large deal and then maybe divesting or selling off what is not core is often a great way to kind of hedge your risk and make sure that the large deal is strategic. Now, let's talk about your latest research. If I'm correct, that's about adjacency. So you were looking at what sort of industries do companies target? What did you learn there? Yeah, so this is research that has yet to be released. And I'll put a disclaimer that we're refreshing this to go through the end of 2022. So through December of this past year. So um, data is still getting clean. But 
what we're seeing is is a couple things. One thing that's interesting is that on average, programmatic companies are acquiring at a higher multiple. And I think that this is maybe counterintuitive. Um, you'll talk to a lot of companies and say, well, we got a great deal on that company. And programmatic companies who, who again, are the, the outperformers are in fact acquiring at a higher multiple. So why is that? And that goes to the question you just asked. Programmatic companies are much more likely to acquire into an adjacency. And we measure this uh, you know, using the industry classification of the revenue that they just bought. And what we're seeing is that programmatic companies, they're acquiring in an industry that's very close to their current core, but a somewhat of a step out. And as a result, those are often higher growth areas. So they're putting their portfolio into growth vectors. And not surprisingly, they're having to pay for that. They're having to play higher multiples for the growth that they're acquiring. And if you contrast that with, say, large deal companies, large deals are much more likely or have historically been much more likely to be acquiring revenue that's core to your existing business. And much less of those large deals are in adjacency. Some of the revenue is adjacent, but much, much lower percentage than programmatic companies. So this idea of I'm acquiring to higher growth adjacencies, I'm transitioning my portfolio into more exciting, better long-term perspectives. I'm paying for it with my multiples, but on average, I expect that to work out. That's what the data is showing. Yeah, that sounds similar to what we've been doing at Shell when we try to get started on the energy transition. We try and work out which of the businesses are adjacent to what we're doing already. So starting charging services at existing retail stations is one thing, but the next step was to acquire companies that offer charging services in another place, including lampposts to develop the charging network more quickly. Similarly, uh, going into offshore wind farms made sense as we're already experienced offshore and we had an established energy trading business. And it's true that these adjacencies increase the chance of success. What I like about that example is you're building on something that you're good at. So we often ask our clients as they look at exciting and high growth adjacencies, they're seeing these opportunities and they're saying, wow, look at how this company is trading. Look at how well it's performed. This feels like something we should be getting involved in. And what your example shows is that you're looking at your kind of natural owner characteristics at Shell and saying, how do we create value? What are we good at? And therefore, that adjacency didn't feel so far afield. You can quite easily see how you create value. And so a lot of times we're, we're asking our clients as they consider these exciting adjacencies, what's your unique value creation? So if I'm listening and I'm a deal maker, what is it that your advice would be to them? they get tasked by the CEO or the strategy team to lead and execute a deal. So what can they learn from you? Well, I hope they can learn something, but I, I would say the three most common things for a company who is maybe the deal maker themselves and the company and organization has conviction that M&A can create value, but they don't know where to get started. So if you're trying to build an execution, M&A execution engine, I would say three things. The first most common thing when we're talking to companies that are going from zero to good or zero to great is, do you really have a clear corporate strategy that's aligned across your leadership team, across your organization, uh, with your board? Without a corporate strategy, you find yourself in this kind of circular loop where if you're an M&A dealmaker, and I'm sure this sounds familiar to you, you find a deal that you like, you diligence it, you get very, very excited. 
you actually engage with the other side. They get excited by the potential. You bring it to your leadership team or you bring it to your board. And there's a lot of questions about not necessarily the company itself, but why are we going in this direction? And that's an incredibly frustrating circular reference problem. So the first thing is really a clear view on your strategy. And then the second thing is a clear view, a very specific view on your M&A blueprint. Where is M&A critical to execute this strategy? If you have ambitions to double a business within a couple of years and your momentum case gets you nowhere near doubling that business, then that probably is an area that in organic opportunities makes sense. And so without that kind of clear, clear M&A blueprint, you're again finding yourself in a bit of a circular reference problem. And then the last thing I would say is once you kind of have this clear corporate strategy, you have a clear M&A blueprint, M&A is not the sole job of the head of business development, the head of corporate development, the head of M&A. M&A is something that must be co-owned by a leadership team. It often will include ownership. I use that in quotes, ownership by the board. A great M&A engine has executives doing that proactive sourcing that I described. It's not simply the job of the head of M&A or the M&A team. I serve a company that's a very well-known acquirer in the healthcare industry. The head of their research and development team is very, very active getting to know these earlier stage companies that are doing very exciting innovation. And this individual has been out there getting to know them, building relationships with them, talking about how they could help each other. And they've become a buyer of choice for these assets. They, they've been there from the beginning. Uh, the company is approaching them. They're often getting involved with minority ownership or other joint venture opportunities. And then when the time comes to potentially sell, they're in a privileged position. And if this company had just left M&A up to the head of M&A, those relationships would not have necessarily happened. So you're saying that the M&A team needs to enlist the help of the board and the management to really help them uh, build a large funnel of companies that you are potentially interested in. Exactly right. And more exciting than that is when a deal does happen, there's this real feeling of co-ownership. Integration is quite a bit easier if the executive team is engaged. In that example, when deals are consummated, the head of R&D knows exactly where the, the key integration opportunities are, where the risks are, and doesn't feel like sometimes people feel where the deal was just, quote, thrown over the fence to him or her and now they have to execute it, there, there's actual real conviction around the deal and the integration value drivers. So let me try and conclude a few of the points. Programmatic deal-making strategies win, that's clear. Private equity is, a, is actually a good follower of your advice. If you're doing large deals, you have a chance of success that's so much higher if you're already on a programmatic M&A strategy because you're using your experience. We did say a lot of deals fail, but inorganic growth is always giving better results than uh, a solely organic growth strategy. We talked about adjacency and uh, the programmatic M&A companies that actually add value by close to their core, but not only more of what they have already. And they're even prepared to buy at higher multiples. And if you're an individual deal dealmaker, um, make sure that you understand the corporate strategy to avoid getting into a loop when you propose a deal and the strategy is at that moment being debated. Be very specific uh, with a view on your M&A blueprint. Co-opt your board and management 
to fill your funnel with deal opportunities and have a network of relationship with uh, lots of folks and companies that may be of interest. Is that a fair summary, Jeff? It's a great summary. The one that I would add that you actually brought up is this kind of culture of learning and culture of improvement. We see that the companies that are actively taking a, a look back and saying, what could we have done better? What did we do well? And then incorporating it into their future lessons, those companies are performing better. So I would add that as well. Jeff, that's actually the best advertisement you could make for our podcast and the learning element of a programmatic M&A strategy uh, makes a difference. And I hope the podcast provides lots of learning. It's great that you could be here. Thanks very much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. I hope to share the latest lessons, as I mentioned, through 2022 on McKinsey.com in the next couple of months. And I suspect we will see our, our friend Programmatic continues to outperform. I hope you enjoyed listening to this edition of the Mergers and Acquisition podcast with my guest Jeff Rudnicki from McKinsey. Listen to or download the next edition from your favorite podcast provider or from pilco.com. You can also leave comments and feedback at the pilco.com website. Thank you for listening.